Hello, Detroit in the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit. I'm Orlando Bailey. Listen, last week, Donna and I had the opportunity to emcee a virtual community gathering in partnership with Eastside Community Network to dialogue with residents about Proposal In. Previous Authentically Detroit guests, former Deputy Mayor Anthony Adams and State Senator Adam Ollier joined the gathering to offer their varying commentary on Proposal N and to answer resident questions. Proposal N will be on the November ballot in Detroit. Take a listen. So, um, thank you. I want to welcome you um, with my co-host Orlando Bailey. We are going to be recording this evening's show, as mentioned, um, for Authentically Detroit. Um, where we um, record weekly to talk about topical issues. Um, in 19, 2019, I'm sorry, Orlando and I launched Authentically Detroit, which is a podcast that aims to create an intergenerational platform to discuss topics of local importance and recent news items throughout the through the lens of equity. And since the launch one year ago, we have recorded over 40 episodes. So can you believe that, Orlando? Yeah, I can't believe people... <laughs> You're listening to this. <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, please tune in every week to hear the latest episode on our website, ecn-detroit.org um, slash podcast or on buzzsprout.com. And right now we are also a content partner for Orlando's new employment. Um, Orlando, can you talk about that? Absolutely. So I serve as the engagement director for Bridge Detroit. We are a new journalism and engagement organization focused on amplifying and uplifting the priorities that Detroiters themselves identify and using journalism as an answer to uh, those priorities, those information needs and gaps. And so we are aiming to talk to as many Detroiters as possible so that we can make sure that our content is tried and true. We are a newsroom that is made up of Detroiters working for Detroiters. You can visit us at bridgedetroit.com to subscribe to our content today. We are just over 100 days, years old. We launched in a pandemic and I don't advise anybody to launch anything in the pandemic ever again. <laughs> All right, so um, let's go on to the next slide. Um, um, so we have some questions. If you are um, on the Zoom call, these questions are going to be populated, but if you are on Facebook, please answer yes or no. The first question we have is, are you familiar with Proposal N? If yes, plus, press yes. If no, press no. Okay. I tried to vote, but it won't let me vote. Okay. Second question, where have you learned about Proposal N? At a city council meeting, community meeting, news media, social media like Facebook or Twitter, or from some other um, source? Okay. Next question. Have you made up your mind about how you will vote on proposal N, yes or no? Okay. 
So we're going to start out um, this conversation by talking about what the content of the resolution that was passed by City Council. Um, so this content is not content that we've modified, but we want people to understand um, the, the um, content. So hold on, before we do that, um, we, it was suggested that we share the information from the poll so we can see where we start. So why don't we do that first so we can figure out where we are in terms of um, those questions that we asked. Everybody gets to see them in real time. Camille, can you share those? Yep, so first up, we have the results for um, pre-question number one, which everybody should be able to see now. So you can see 75% uh, of people were familiar already, and 25% of people on the webinar right now were not familiar. Um, and then next, we have pre-question number two, um, learning more about how people who didn't know about um, Proposal N knew about it. So it seems like a lot of people learn from community meetings, from news media or other. I'd be interested to know what other is. <laughs> yeah, but sh shockingly, no social media. Um, and then finally, we have pre-question number three. Um, where 27% of people have already made up their minds about how they're going to be voting on proposal in and 73% have not. Oh, good. So we have some open minds here tonight. Exactly. Okay, so going back to the slides, if we can go back. So um, the highlights from the proposal and resolution as passed by city council, um, that um, they, the, they promise, the city promises through this proposal, um, well, the city plans to borrow up to $250 million to um, improve neighborhoods based on these factors, to save every house possible from demolition by prioritizing the rehab of vacant homes, to give preference to Detroit companies in all rehabilitation and demolition related contracts with a goal of 50% of the work performed by Detroit, or 50% 50, 50 plus performed by Detroit contractors. Give preference to companies who commit to train and employ Detroiters with the goal of getting these companies to employ at least 51% Detroit residents. Partner with Detroit community development organizations, CDOs, and other qualified groups to rehab homes and redevelop property in the neighborhoods. Five, give preference to Detroit residents to acquire and reuse the properties in their neighborhoods. Six, combine the neighborhood improvement bonds with other funding sources for broader neighborhood redevelopment. Seven, bring accountability for the demolition back under oversight of city government. And eight, keep the property tax rate at current levels while supporting a $250 million, um, I'm sorry, this um, million dollar, Reinvestment in the neighborhoods. Orlando, do you want to do the next slide? Sure. Uh, next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, the, some of the key commitments that are coming out of uh, this proposal, uh, the city will create a neighborhood advisory board that will be made up of appointees by uh, the mayor's office and city council. Uh, the city will prioritize hiring Detroiters in the vacant house management department. That will be a new department created by uh, the mayor's uh, office. City will work with the Detroit Land Bank Authority to establish a discount program for Detroit residents, increase access to vacant land and structures, and train Detroiters to rehab 
vacant homes. Okay, the city will also increase sales of homes to 2,500 and will market homes to residents at or below the 50% 50% of the area median income. The city will work with financial institutions to establish lending products for low-income Detroiters without good credit. City will establish sustainable redevelopment standards for housing rehab. And the Housing and Revitalization Department agrees to use Future CARES Act, Community Development Block Grant, and Home and Future Non-CARES Act, CDBG, or other eligible funds. We got the alphabet soup going on there. That's a ton of federal dollars, okay, uh, to support the Detroit Housing Compact, Building the Engine of Community Development Home Rehabilitation Pilot Program. And that uh, pilot program um, is a program aimed at owner-occupied homes for rehab. Well, it's actually it's actually aimed at the acquisition rehab of vacant land um, land bank homes, where community development organizations will build their capacity to acquire and rehab those homes for sale or rental at an affordable rate to Detroiters. So we'll go into that a little bit later during questions and answers. Um, but next slide. And we'll, um, I see Edith, I see you have a question. Let's talk about that question after we let our presenters present. We'll come back to that. Thank you for raising that. And um, with that, we are joined by um, Senator, State Senator Adam Ollier, um, who joined Orlando and myself on a recent podcast. And in that podcast, he shared with us that he really wanted to share his perspective on proposal N, in which he favors. So Senator, um, we're going to open this up to you and let you explain to us why this is something you support. Um, and we're going to ask you to limit your initial comments to five minutes and then Orlando and I are going to have a little, a couple questions and we'll move on to our next presenter. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll try and be brief. I think with proposal in, uh, there have probably been more questions uh, than answers about this. And there's been a lot of discussion that the proposals have changed. But the reason I'm supportive of proposal in is because I'm tired of talking to neighbors and community members and saying, hey, there just isn't the funding to, call to fix that problem in your community. And so, you know, I've met many of you uh, through my different roles, both working uh, in the last mayoral administration where I sat at the council table and had to sit through all the public health and safety committee meetings where you'd have all these folks come in and say, hey, I'd like to get this home demolished. This house has been vacant, it's been dangerous, and there's no way to get it down because there haven't been the funds. And so for communities that are in the hardest hit neighborhoods, there were federal funds to knock these things down. And that just did not happen, you know, citywide. And even more than that, there are lots of communities where it's not just a house that needs to be demolished, but a home that needs to be buttoned up, right? So we're talking about securing the front door, the windows and things like that. So people can't use those uh, facilities, those homes for drug trafficking, for human trafficking, for, you know, all the kinds of things that become problematic next door. But even more than that, you know, some of these homes just get hit by the weather, right? So you have a fire house next door burns up and it's still potentially savable, but it has some minor roof damage or has some, some issues right that and water will get into it and cause that how that home to degrade. And before you know it, somebody's in there and they are lighting a fire and all those kind of things. And you get homes that were savable that could be uh, new neighbors and then they have to be demolished. And that's a problem. And so proposal and provides us with um, opportunities, provides us with tools. And I think it's a really important thing and even more than just the, 
hey, it's going to get some of these houses down. It's going to secure some of the homes in our neighborhood. It's also going to provide Detroiters with the opportunities to start businesses, to be entrepreneurs in this space at a fairly low skill, low entry um, profession. And because of some of the changes that council members and community members pushed for, you're also seeing all of these contracts not only go back under the city of Detroit, but they'll, they'll come before council. So every single one of these demolition contracts will come before council and they're gonna be bid at much smaller numbers. You aren't gonna have to have the same type of bonding that you had on some of those bigger contracts. So it's gonna be approachable for neighbors. And you're also gonna see neighbors who for the last decade and two decades have been boarding up homes in their community on Saturdays or on weekends and ECN has done board ups and has done those kind of things. I imagine every single person participating here has gone to a neighborhood cleanup where we had to do board ups. Wouldn't it be great if there were city resources to fund the plywood and the screws and the nails to make sure that you could do those kind of things and that when you boarded these facilities up, they stayed uh, boarded up. So that's why I'm a big supporter of Proposal N and I wanna see it happen and wanna see it happen soon. So I'm happy to answer any questions and appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about it. Sorry, there are a couple questions that were raised. I wanna make sure you have an opportunity to answer these questions. The first one is from Michelle Jackson. She says, what development in Detroit has benefited from residents? I'm sorry, what development? What, development, what new developments in Detroit have really helped residents? I think that's the question. So I was having a conversation today with uh, Pastor Barry from Church of the Messiah. The work that they've done has been a big benefit. Uh, I'm on the board at uh, Vanguard. Vanguard has built some homes. Um, there are also some you know, going on right now in the North End. And so I think those have been big benefits. Uh, the NSO renovation of the Bell Building has been a big, you know, difference maker. It's the largest supporting house, supported housing, temporary supported housing uh, in the state. So there are lots of projects that have been to benefit to Detroiters in Detroit neighborhoods. But the majority of those projects are led by Detroiters. And so that's why it's so important for us to have opportunities for Detroiters to invest and to be a part of these programs. Um. All right, and we have a couple more questions. Um, Camille, can you see any more questions that you want to share with us? Yes, so we have a question in the Q&A from Edith Ford. She asks, what does give preference mean and why aren't CDOs given same preference language? That's a good question. Um, so I don't know why community development organizations aren't given the same preference. And I think they are when we talk about Detroit based businesses and those kind of things. I think CDOs should fit in that. And if they aren't, that's something that we should address immediately. So it's not to say that the proposal in is perfect, but I think it is another tool in the toolbox and something that we should be working to. And we talk about giving preference uh, when the purchasing department awards contracts, they have a uh, point system. And so it's talking about adding additional points in the competitive bid process. So all things being equal, if you are a Detroit-based business, you would get the job over someone else. So it's, it's that kind of space. So I think it's like 25 or 50 points or, or something like that, enough to make a difference. Yeah, I think the question is why aren't community development organizations, which are um, organizations that exist inside of the community given preference and given points specifically in addition to all of the other categories of businesses like minority owned Detroit based businesses, why don't we have a specific preference for community development organizations? I don't, um, I, 
I don't know why, and I don't think that that came up, but I think it's an important thing, and I would be happy to continue to advocate for it. It's something that uh, council could pass. It's something that would go before the council table, but I would be absolutely 100% supportive. I would be happy to come and testify in front of council uh, to make that happen. I think it's an important part because you have been doing the work. The same thing is true about some of these block clubs in, in communities that don't, aren't as organized because you have 100% been doing the work. You've been identifying the vacant properties and will be a real partner in turning over some of these homes and getting them redeveloped and back on tax rolls and getting residents back in them, getting neighbors back in them. Okay, we're gonna have two more questions before we move on to our next guest. And then we're gonna let more people ask questions um, at, if, when, after we're done with both guests. So the next two questions, Camille. Um, so we have another question from our um, Q&A, um, and the question was, why aren't residents able to appoint the advisory board as opposed to the mayor if the um, proposal is supposed to be for residents? That's just the way that the council and the mayor did it. If, <laughs> if they want to change that, I would be supportive of that again. You know, that's something that the council and the mayor would have to do um, by negotiation. And I would be supportive of that. I mean, this should have as much community input and impact as possible. And nobody knows neighborhoods better than residents. Nobody knows it better than neighbors. And so, you know, we should be trying 100% to continue to move forward on this. The only thing that proposal in guarantees is that the money is collected. How that is administered can constantly be changed and addressed through more redress from the city council and the mayor's office. And as a matter of fact, if you don't like how it's moving, there's another mayoral and council election next year. And so there are lots of opportunities to uh, weigh in and say, this is working the way I wanted to, or this isn't. What we have right now is an opportunity to get $250 million in that we will not have at another time without causing a tax increase. Mm -hmm. All right, um, the next question, Camille, we have one more and then we're gonna go to our next guest and then we're going to come back to john harris and doug russell who've raised really strong questions but the one more question camille okay uh, so um the final question for this round is from doug russell and he asked how does proposal n deal with long-term affordability specifically when these houses have been cleared what are we doing to make sure current detroiters continue to be able to live in detroit that's a great question, Doug. And, and it's probably the most important piece as we talk about how we move forward in this space. And so the land bank program, the, I'm sorry, maybe I just froze. Uh, the land bank, am I frozen? Not frozen? We hear you. Oh, okay, sorry, the screen popped, uh, that Zoom life. Um, it's really important that we talk about affordability, particularly in these homes, right? And so the land bank has done an okay job of that. I don't think has gone nearly far enough to ensuring that um, the homes are done at that appropriate space. City employees got that 50% space. I think I've been pushing the administration and I know they're going to be presenting to council some programs, particularly for individuals who were, uh, who lost their homes in the overtaxation issue and allowing them to buy them at decreased prices, the land bank doing more things like that with the rehabbed and ready program with their auctions. I think this is exactly the type of work that we need to be doing. And the next step, even above and beyond what we're doing proposal in. But I think that they're critically important as we talk about saving some of these homes, that and it absolutely will help make sure that we have more homes that neighbors can move into. And the city having them, I think will allow them to be sold at cheaper rates than some of the prices that you see on the, on the regular market. Okay, so I wanna thank you. We have a couple other questions that were raised that we're going to get to. 
but I also want to invite um, Anthony Adams into this conversation. Anthony Adams is our former deputy mayor under Kwame Kilpatrick. He is a former Detroit school board member, and he is now a uh, principal at the um, Marine Adams Law Firm, I believe, and has been very active in some of our community meetings. So Anthony, you reached out because you wanted to share your perspectives on why we shouldn't vote for Proposal N. Tell me what you think. Well, first of all, I want to thank the uh, Eastside Community Network for allowing me the opportunity to present uh, concerning my, my angst at Proposal N. Uh, Senator Adam Holier was pretty nice when he talked about the performance of the administration in the handling and the management of the demolition program. Let's just be clear. The handling and management of demolition in Detroit has been a complete disaster. And I won't go through all of the bad things that have happened during the course of uh, administering that demolition program, but suffice it to say that if your past conduct is evidence of your future intent, this is a proposal that should not be voted on for a number of reasons. First off, one of the main issues in Detroit is stabilization of people who actually can live in their homes, who own their homes. Proposal N does not offer one iota of a solution to assist the people who actually need, who live in their houses now, and who actually need rehabilitation of those houses. It doesn't address that issue. I think the second thing we need to talk about is the actual number of minorities that have actually participated uh, in the prior demolition program. When I took a look at the numbers of how much money was actually spent, and based on the city's own records and audits, it was about $532 million, I can only find less than 10% of the money that was awarded to minority contractors in the city of Detroit. The administration also made proposals concerning exactly how many Detroiters were going to be employed. And yet they have not offered one single example of the numbers of Detroiters that are actually been employed by or utilized in the past demolition program. And so what we end up with are a series of promises, promises, promises that things are going to be better, but we end up with the same result. We're creating now a new management process to handle the uh, management of property in the city of Detroit. It still doesn't eliminate the more than 300 people that are actually employed by the Detroit Land Bank. By my own count, we have about 530 people involved in administering uh, development policy in the city of Detroit. And the question that was asked by one is why aren't CDOs given preferences? Because that's a matter of policy that the administration could set. And so if you're talking about revitalizing neighborhoods, if you're talking about coming up with a comprehensive plan on how these things are to look, before you sneak an issue on the ballot, because that's what was done, if you'll recall back last year around November, we were having hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of people showing up at city council meeting to protest the putting of on the tax rolls of a demolition bond. And they were protesting because the citizens in Detroit have been overtaxed by more than $600 million that we had more than 120,000 people who actually lost their homes through tax foreclosure when the hardest hit funds were set up for that exact purpose to maintain and preserve people in their houses. And we had more than 100,000 people with their water shut off. So when you talk about transparency and how this program was developed, it's ironic that it would be snuck on the ballot at the last minute without any real public participation in the actual shaping of the issues. The questions that were raised by a number of the participants clearly spoke to the holes and gaps within this program. 
And before we talk about spending another $250 million with interest would be more than $450 million to burden the tax benefits of the city of Detroit, we need to really examine exactly what the policy is. I find it unusual that after several years, they would finally want to come up with a plan to try to assist people in housing when by my own count, they probably spent close to $800 million in actually demolishing property while we've had people that moved out the city in droves to places like South Warren, Allen Park, East Point, because they simply can't afford to buy a house in the city of Detroit. And so we need to really re-examine the policy direction of what we're doing versus spending more money. Thank you. Okay. Wow, so we um, have a few more questions um, that are um, really directed, I think, at um, um, Senator Ollier. Um, so, but one of the questions is, maybe we'll just get right into these general questions. Um, is this the best use of $250 million? Well, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Wendell Dudney asked a question earlier about what about the $6 million over taxation? Do you want to address those issues, each of you, on what do you think is being done there? Are we being fair? Well, we clearly aren't being fair because when the issue was raised uh, back in February and March, uh, it was given short thrift because no one wanted to address the issue of overtaxation because part of the problem and why we had people leaving and, and losing their homes was because they were being overtaxed. And so before we talk about spending more money and going further in debt, we need to figure out how we're going to address issues of equity so that the people who actually lost their houses perhaps should be first in line to have a transition of housing so that they can get their property back. But more importantly, I guess it's a question of how you want to spend your money. Clearly given the city's financial condition as it stands today uh, with the debt that we are anticipating that we'll have based on COVID-19, I don't believe that it is a wise choice for the city to go further in debt because that tax millage rate that currently exists was scheduled to drop uh, if in fact this $250 million is not placed on the bond roll. And so what Detroiters need is a tax break. And clearly by not borrowing this additional $250 million, they would get that tax break next year because their millage rate would drop. So I don't believe it's a good use of our money because it's not focused on a community driven plan that addresses the needs of Detroiters who live in the city. You know, Anthony, I want to uh, follow up on that question and I would love for you and Senator Ollier to address it in terms of uh, the, the ability to make policy around different kinds of money. Uh, the city uh, seemed to be very limited in being able to make policy around HHF funds that came from the federal government, but a little bit more free to create policy around this bond money. Can you explain the differences and what the, the what power the city actually has to create uh, some, of, some of these policies that you're talking about and some of the residents are asking questions about? Certainly, uh, unless the Senator wants to go first, I wanna be respectful of our elected officials. Hey, you know, I, I, you've been at this a long time. He asked you directly. I'm certainly welcome to, to concede the point Okay, uh, so, so the way it was structured under the hardest hit funds, obviously it was a pass through to the state housing finance agency, in this case, the Michigan State Housing Development Authority, which put a lot of restrictions on exactly how the money could be used. I believe that there should have been a little more advocacy because what was needed in the city of Detroit 
from 2014 to 2019 was a plan to preserve and keep people in housing because the best housing strategy that you could have is to preserve and keep people in their housing. There were, there were restrictions on that money. But when you look at the funding stream of how money actually flowed into the Detroit land bank, the city subsidized the land bank to the tune of at least $120, $130 million. And there were no restrictions on how the city could use its own general fund dollars to spend money. And so what I'm saying is that it was a policy direction that was taken to spend money on demolishing property, even where you had no restrictions on that money. Because remember, now they want to borrow $250 million of funding to do exactly what they could have done with money that they already had. And so it was a policy direction and difference that really needed to be addressed. And it wasn't because it was removed outside of the city's process, but was not outside of the process of the mayor, who essentially appoints the land bank personnel. I mean, I think to your question was about opportunity costs. It was, if not this, then what? So if we don't pass proposal in, then people will get a three mil savings on their tax bill. So for people who have a house worth $10,000, that's gonna save them like $300. And so, yes, there are absolutely, that is an option. Or we can spend that money, that $250 million to demolish 8,000 structures and to prevent 8,000 more structures from being done. Now, you know, Anthony Adams has made a, a number of points about how the administration in the past should have done different things. And I would agree, you know, and, and not even to say hindsight is twenty twenty, but there are lots of things that administrations in the past could have done better. That is not what we're deciding today. Today we are deciding what is the best use of the time and resource we have today. And there is no alternative proposal on the ballot in November. You can vote yes or you can vote no. So we can do $250 million and do blight and demolition, you know, or we can't. And, and that's where we are today. Should we also be at the same time advocating for more robust, affordable housing programs? Yes, without question. I don't think anybody disputes that. Should we be doing more for the people who were overtaxed uh, and subject to the $660 million? Yes, but where did that money go? It went to schools, it went to the city. It did not go to some you know, fat cat or in their pockets. Were there problems? Absolutely. So what we should be spending our time is on how do we address the problems going forward? How do we do a better job of making sure that when you send your child to school, got, you know, whenever schools come back and kids can, can go back to walking and doing those kind of things, are they walking past dangerous structures? When we say, when we go out right now and we see a hole in the ground, did a black Detroiter knock that house down? Did they do that work? And that's what we should be focused on. And that's what I'm focused on is saying, hey, we should all be in agreement that black Detroiters should be the ones getting these contracts, should be the ones demolishing, should be the ones boarding them up, should be the ones selling them. And so there is no question, and I think from an organizational standpoint, CDOs should be leading the charge. Community groups should be leading the charge. Yes, 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 yes. We should be doing all those kind of things. And that's why I got involved in Proposal and to make sure that we hold folks accountable. And the beauty of doing this right now, when it, it's the opportunity, is that there will not be you know, a, tax you know, a tax increase by asking somebody next year or in two years. But even more than that, as uh, my good friend uh, Anthony is saying, uh, there's going to be a mayoral election next year. So if you don't like the administration and the way they are handling the business, vote them out. I mean, I know there's at least one person here who is, is saying, hey, maybe he would be better at managing that. 
for me, I want to make sure that whoever the mayor is next year and in two years in the city council, that they have the resources to respond when Ms. Johnson comes to the city council building and says, hey, this house next door to me is vacant. Or when somebody says, hey, I'm looking for a house and there was a house in my neighborhood that if you guys had just done the work to invest in my community and save this house, I could live in. Because that's not what's been happening. And that's what we need to make sure does happen. Um, jump in there for me before we go to the next question. Um, one comment, uh, if I could. But I guess you know what we what we what you're telling us is that the toolbox is limited. And what I'm saying is that the toolbox is not limited. For example, at the state level, we have an agency known as the Michigan State Housing Development Authority. It's probably sitting on seven or eight billion dollars in assets and has not been an aggressive lender in the city of Detroit. So when we talk about housing policy and preservation, the toolbox is as limited as you want it to be or is it as expansive as you want it to be. And all I'm simply saying is that the citizens in Detroit have been overtaxed and have been tax burdened that there is another avenue that could be used, but without consulting and having community conversation, you miss that opportunity. I mean, I, you're talking about Mr. Mr. is lending in the city of Detroit. Are they doing enough of it? No. And again, that's something that we should be continuing to work on. Something I push Mr. on is something that uh, Donna and Orlando in their role at ECN have been pushing and partnering with Mr. to do. But if the answer is, hey, we should rely on Mr. or the state to do these kind of things, it ain't happened yet. I don't know why we would expect all these kind of things to all of a sudden change. That's just not realistic. Well, I have a question. And that is about housing affordability in Detroit, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of studies that have shown that housing has become much more unaffordable than it used to be. In the past year, I've been trying to help a couple family members find housing, and it's high. I mean, if you're looking for quality, affordable housing, it's high. So I guess my question is, if you had, and I used to do this like um, a strategic planning exercise that we do sometimes in organizations where you ask people, if you had a million dollars, how would you spend that money? And I guess my question is, if you had $250 million, what is the highest and best use of that money to address the housing shortage? Or, and this is the second part of the question, is that the focus that we, sh is that what we should be focusing on? Because it seems to me as a proposal in may indirectly impact housing shortage, but not directly. Um, is there a better way to do it? And is, is if you had, if you had, and I'm not saying the mayor proposal in, but if either of you had $250 million, Senator Oli, I'm going to start with you. How would you spend that? <laughs> well, that's, you a, that's a pretty involved question. If I had $250 million to address the housing issue, how would I spend it? Or if I had $250 million, how would I spend it? If you had $250 million to spend on economic development in Detroit, how would you, in neighborhoods, if you had $250 million to fix neighborhoods like Proposal N, how would you spend that $250? I'd spend it on schools. I'd spend it on making sure that every neighborhood across the city had a high quality school that was safe for kids to go to. And I don't know that it would get, you know, as far as we're talking about, but I think that is the best investment that we can make it is money in schools. If we're talking about housing policy, and I, I, I'll be fair, and, and I think that that's more where you were going, I think you probably are talking about some mixture of some type of financing tool so that people can get the uh, construction and space that they need to do that, right? So Angela, who is uh, on the here, used to run Young Detroit Builders. And that was an incredible program that, you know, fixed up some of these homes, 
And so as I talk about schools, it's about getting folks into safe, affordable housing. And we have lots of homes, they just aren't typically safe. And so to find a moving ready, safe home is very difficult, which is why it's so important for us to get some of these spaces uh, saved before they degrade to a place where they aren't habitable and you have folks living in them. And that is the, that is the crux, that is the nexus is, how safe is a home? And if it's next to a burnt out building, not particularly safe. If it has a hole in the roof or lead, you know, lead paint, lead windows, not safe. It's addressing some of those issues. Detroit has a host of issues. I think constantly it's pick one thing, try and get it done. But I'm trying to ask you a question about how would you fix up neighborhoods? And so what I'm hearing you say is if you had $250 million to invest in neighborhoods, you would invest it in schools. Is that correct? Yes, it is. All right. Without question. Well, I, if I had $250 million, there would be at least three or four things that, that I would do. First of all, part of the problem in Detroit and when people invest in houses is that oftentimes when people invest in their property, the house still isn't worth as much as how, they, how much money they put actually in their property. And so what we have is a, was a, as a, as a housing equity issue because there was a study done actually by the Brookings Institute, uh, a young man by the name of Andre Carey, which talked about how property in black communities is actually devalued. And so what we have is economic redlining, which, is, which devalues our community so that people aren't encouraged or incentivized to invest. And so part of what I would do with the $250 million is create almost a private market-driven solution. I would require banks that hold city funds, and the city is probably holding about seven to eight billion dollars within local banks. They would have to make, uh, they would have to make investments and property in the city of Detroit. I would use the city's $250 million almost as a backstop guarantee to help with the financing of the improvements of that house. Because I think what's important first is that we have to preserve people in housing that they're in. And when I ride down you know, Lakewood or when I ride on Piper and some of these streets and I see a blue tarp over someone's roof because they can't afford to have a roof placed on their house in the house that they're living in, my motto is we need to first preserve the housing that we're in. So that's the first phase of the program, is to preserve the housing that people are in. Secondly, we also have to begin to aggressively move to depopulate the land bank so that we can create affordable housing options in the city of Detroit. It is unconscionable that they're still holding thousands of houses in their inventory, and we cannot rent, we are, we are not doing enough to push those housings out into the market so that people have affordable housing solutions. And so when you talk about utilizing money and the highest and best use of money, we then have to preserve, we have to create affordable housing opportunities for people who need to be in houses because I'm tired of our community moving to communities where they're not treated well, whether it's South Warren, whether it's uh, River Rouge, East Forest, some of these communities are, are not as Allen Park, uh, and it's not as inviting as they need to be in order to maintain, to preserve people in the city of Detroit. The final aspect of that is to work in concert uh, with an agency like the Michigan State Housing Development Authority, because we have Senator Adam Ollier and Lansing who will push this issue with Michigan to make sure that, that there is a scorecard that we can evaluate exactly how much single family housing lending they're actually doing in the, in the city of Detroit. I maintain that Mr. is not doing what they're supposed to do and aren't being pressed hard enough to do what they need to do. And so we use our money as, as a combination of a private incentive with, with banks, direct grant opportunities to people to, to maintain their houses, 
and move that process forward to rehabilitate and create affordable housing opportunity. Because the problem in Detroit is that we have a, a investment equity issue because when you look at Detroit, what you're dealing with in essence is a city where 40, people spend 40% on average of their income for housing, where it really should only be 25%. And we've got to begin to adjust those equities so that people have the dollars that they need in order to stay in their housing. All right, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you are saying that you would take $250 million and invest it first in supporting people's, um, in, in, in investing in people's homes today. There was an article, I believe, in Bridge Detroit Magazine. Is that true, Orlando? Was it Bridge Detroit or Bridge that talked Bridge. about that? Can you talk about that article? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Bridge Detroit published an article uh, by one of our reporters, uh, Louis Aguilar, who uh, has been doing really some some deep digging around uh, the the sustainability around proposal in and talking to residents and talking to community development organizations and what what we're hearing so far is essentially what we heard in the beginning of uh, of this conversation when the community took a vote is that folks aren't really sure right there is there is a worry that if uh, the city receives an additional $250 million, then how would that be managed and implemented? How long will it take to spend? And uh, what, exact, what exactly um, are they, is this, will the city be committed to spending it on when the former uh, demolition program was under federal investigation? So there's, there's a lot of ifs. Uh, iffy people out there who uh, want, you know, questions answered. I think the other, the other piece uh, that has come up for us when, you know, sourcing these interviews, and I would love to hear uh, Senator Olier or Adam uh, Anthony talk about this, is the fact that, of course, we, we have the number of structures that the city will commit to demolish and or salvage, but that, that number doesn't equal what needs to be demolished and what needs to be salvaged. It's, it's probably just a, a drop in the bucket. And so the, there is a question around who, who, who picks who picks where we start? Where do we go? And what is the policy uh, around that? And so we, you know, we've been we've been doing that digging and you know asking and poking and priding on those questions because uh, you know, frankly, even in, in my years at ECN, we have uh, an elder in our community who is in a neighborhood who is that isn't targeted, that isn't targeted for development, that wasn't targeted for hardest hit fund dollars, who pays her taxes, who raised a son, who went on to work for the Detroit Police Department and can't get anything done on her block. Is this a policy that will continue with uh, this bond having to choose Again, winners, and I don't want to say losers, but neighborhoods that don't get to be recipients of these dollars. Uh, uh, Senator Olia, let's start with you. Yeah, so I mean, that's exactly why I'm engaged in this process because, as you know, as we talk about these kind of things, government is has always been about picking winners. I just wish it was less about this idea that there's also a loser in this space because when you talk about you know that that homeowner, that resident, that neighbor, that community staple. She has been saying, hey, come knock this house down, right? She's been saying, come board this structure up for years. And people are saying, hey, your neighborhood is not a priority. 
your neighborhood is not a thing. And Proposal N allows an individual to leverage her council, leverage her mayor and say, hey, come knock this thing down. Come talk to my community group for block clubs to be engaged. And that the only restriction is the local officials who are, are in charge of this. And so I, I say again, if you have a structure that isn't coming down, then, and they now have the money, then you can go back to your councilman and say, hey, you're not doing the job. You can go back to the mayor and say, hey, you aren't doing what I asked you to do. You said that every neighborhood, every neighborhood had a future. You said that you were going to work to make sure that my community was going. You said you were going to make sure that black contractors were doing that. There's an election in one year for all city offices. If they aren't doing this thing, do it now. Get rid of them. Change it out. And that's why this is so important, because we've got to get rid of the excuses that elected officials can say, hey, well, you know, I just don't have the resources. I just can't do that. We got to be able to say, hey, we have given you the tools. Now deliver. Because I know just how frustrating that is, because that happened to my grandmother. I mean, there was a house that had been on the demo list for almost a decade that was literally imploding. And the only reason they were able to come take it down was because it was an emergency demolition and the house was literally falling apart and threatening her house and the house next door. And so they, were, they finally were able to come do that. But that's not an acceptable answer for residents, for neighbors, for people in this community. And I get that people are mistrustful about this administration and any administration, and they should be. They should be calling the government to account. They should be engaged. They should be saying, hey, I, I just, I'm not sure that you're gonna do the right thing. That's why you go to council meetings. That's why you vote. That's why you're involved in your neighborhood organization. That's why you organize. That's why you hold people like me accountable for the things that we say and the commitments that we make. And so I'm here to do that. I'm gonna hold the administration accountable. We'll be talking about these kind of things. We'll continue to engage with you and other entities as this next, you know, as this thing is going on. It's really important that we stay engaged well beyond this vote on both sides. Because if this passes, then there are $250 million that need to be spent wisely. If it fails, then there is $250 million of work that wasn't being done and the number of individuals who said, hey, there are alternatives to this thing and hold them accountable for those alternatives. Because for too long, people have been saying, hey, my neighborhood's gonna get better. This neighborhood's gonna get better next year. It just means that we do these five things. Well, are those five things actually gonna happen? And right. if they don't, saying, hey, well, stop selling me a promise that my neighborhood is gonna get better because the federal government is going to get, you know, going to do these kind of things because the state government is going to do these kind of things because some private developer is going to come in and, you know, put in a new development in my neighborhood or your neighborhood. We know that those things aren't true and that they don't happen. So if you want to expect a development in your neighborhood that is grounded in your community, that is built for people like you who live in it, then it has to be done by people like you who live in your community. And that's why ECN was founded. Right, that's the work that CDOs do is you say, hey, if things are going to be community centered, they need to be community led and run. And that's why it's so important that the community is involved in the process for proposal in, not just, hey, we're gonna pass it, but in the administration, in the running, in the accountability. And that's the only way that this project works. That's the only way that any of these projects work and the only way that these neighborhoods move forward. Because right. every year people make decisions on which neighborhood is gonna be successful or not. And it's not always some objective thing. Sometimes it's the neighborhood that's the most organized. Right. Often so, it's the neighborhood okay. that's most organized. Right. I, I want to I switch gears a little bit. First of all, I want to acknowledge, Eric DeWicke pointed out that the resolution language that I shared was actually a resolution that's a companion to the bond resolution that was actually passed. 
So I want to apologize for that. The bond resolution that was passed is a very specific resolution. It just speaks to the ability to borrow the money and the purposes. And the city is still negotiating. And next week, we hope we'll be voting on another resolution. And a lot of the details I shared are still in um, up for negotiation. So if people have strong ideas, you have between now and next week to get them to city council. And if you want to share them with us, then we'll make sure that we put those things in there. And we are monitoring the Q&A and, and chat to make sure we have those things. The other thing I want to say real quickly, um, Senator Ollier, is it seems as though what I'm hearing from you is don't let um, perfect be the enemy of good. And that you don't really expect us to be able to make meaningful inroads into some of these issues. So it makes sense for us to uh, work with what we can have and be pragmatic in how we approach government. Um, yeah, I'm saying fight on every front. So, so that's what I'm hearing you say. The other thing I'm hearing you say is that, um, that for we, that, and, and somebody pointed out, I think it was also Eric DeWicki who pointed out that a lot of um, what we're hearing from people hinges on whether or not you trust Mayor Duggan. If you trust Mayor Duggan, proposal N is good. And if you don't trust Mayor Duggan, proposal N is bad. And I want to hear from you, Adam, is that you don't, or since early age, you don't have to figure that Adam's out. Fine. Okay, whatever. All right. <laughs> you don't have to make a choice. You, if you don't like Mayor Duggan, it's still a good proposal, but you can mm -hmm. just vote somebody in who you do trust. So I guess my question is this. Is, in your opinion, um, this a good proposal, um, um, Anthony Adams, is this a good proposal in your mind? Like, is this just about, I don't trust the governor, I mean, the mayor? Is this something you can vote out? Because I just have one more little short thing to say, and that is that um, I started ECN some time ago, and I took over from the great Maggie DeSantis in 2016, and um, I did not necessarily want to be tethered to agreements that were made prior to me getting there for the next however many years. So what if you had a new mayor and the new mayor did not think that $250 million should be spent in this way and this person can be trusted, but should they be obligated to carry out somebody else's vision for improving neighborhoods? So it's a lot of questions, a lot of dialogue, but I'm just trying to yeah. uh, get some thoughts started. And so, you know, I guess probably part of the issue is that once, if the resolution were to pass and the bonds sold, the money, the money pretty much would be allocated and spent. I mean, it's, it's not that difficult to spend $250 million quickly if, in fact, you want to do that. I think there is an issue of trust involved, but there's also an issue as to how this proposal was actually developed. Because given the community resistance on the front end of it, I would have thought that if, in fact, there was a desire to create this new program with new incentive and new energy, that there would have been meaningful community conversations before the matter was slipped on the ballot. And so the very fact that it was slipped on the ballot in a manner to me that, that lacks transparency, I obviously have an issue with that. And I don't think you can dismiss the past conduct of how things were administered to say it's not perfect, but we're going to do it better the next time because we had rules and regulations governing exactly what was supposed to have been done then. And so the question generally is one of housing policy. If in fact you believe it is a good policy to borrow $250 million 
to, as they say, demolish and rehab 16,000 houses, I would first say, look at the math. They couldn't demolish a house under the prior program for less than $25,000. And so if you look at the numbers and the math, the numbers don't add up to the numbers of houses that they probably would be able to demolish with the program that they have. And I think there's been a lack of honesty about whether or not every community has a, has a future because we are very low to discuss issues of land vacancy, where you have one house on the block and how you address those issues. And so until we understand exactly what the overall purpose is for our communities, and that conversation should be driven by community organizations in their area, then I think we have to take a step back to figure out exactly the direction that we're going. We don't need any more housing advisory councils. We don't need any more think tank groups. We need people sitting at the table to figure out exactly what the future of their neighborhood is so that we then can have a meaningful plan of action and to move forward. Okay. Um, so I want to make sure that we get to some of these questions in the Q&A. So um, this is a question for Senator Ollier. Will the minority contractors be handled any differently? Differently than they were under the land bank or? or uh, Differently than they have been in the past. Um, there's a perception that um, minority contractors, it's a reality that minority contractors have not been effectively involved in the demolition program in the past. Will That's they- no question. Handle yeah. Yes, abs absolutely they'll be handled differently because they won't fall under the same federal rules. Each one of these contracts will, be, will go before the city council. And so again, the backstop on whether this is happening or not is the city council because they approve every single one of these contracts and will approve those contracts and did not in the past. You also don't have the same bonding requirements and you can change the policies uh, for local dollars that you could not do with some of the federal funds because of federal contracting guidelines. So yes, it will be different, but it still requires us to engage and make sure that council members and the mayor are doing the right thing. And again, you don't like what they're doing, elect new council members. Well, it would be right. nice. It would be nice for the city to tell us exactly what the percentage of minority contracting is under the current dollars that they're allocating. You know, we've been asking for those figures, and we can't seem to get an answer on that. And so, when you talk about honesty and transparency, that is something that needs to be put on the table. Because if you're telling me it's going to be handled differently, I need to understand exactly how it's being handled now for the city contracting with minority contractors. I believe that number is fairly low. Okay, so um, the next question is, um, Doug Russell has so many great questions, but I'm going to ask one of them. He says, um, the expectation set by um, Arthur Jemison, who is the um, group executive for housing development and planning says that at the D7 charter mandated mayor's meeting, he said the houses that are rehabbed will still need approximately $60,000 in work. How many Detroiters in need of affordable and safe housing can afford a $60,000 rehab mortgage? This seems like a very narrow slice of the need in the city today. Now, before we go to the um, panelists, I do want to point out that um, Arthur Jimison has also said the city is going to create a new loan tool or new loan product, working with um, financial institutions to create a loan product that would make um, a $60,000 mortgage affordable to people who are low income and also have bad credit. Is that correct, Orlando? Didn't he say something like that? Uh, yeah, and Donna, if I can just tag on to uh, Doug's question. Um, uh, what, I asked uh, Mr. Jemison, what does 
salvaging the 8,000 homes look like? And most of his answer was literally sort of cleaning them out and, and boarding them up. And if they needed a new roof, uh, then uh, the city will take care of that. And so I want us to be uh, careful around the language we're using when we say the city will save. The city will salvage. Uh, the city will not um, be rehabbing those homes. And so to tag on to uh, Doug's uh, question uh, for everyone to answer, for, for uh, Anthony and uh, Senator Olier, I'm gonna call him Adam, we're friends. So Adam, Adam to answer. That's right. Uh, what does, what, what will that look like? <laughs> What would that look like? And what are the holding costs? And so if, you, if you're if you only cleaning out a home and you're right. putting a roof on it and it has to sit through winter, there's still holding costs and, you know, pre hopefully preventionary measures from uh, on part of the owner, or the, which is the city, to prevent that house from even further decay. Right. Those and are two separate questions, though. Yeah, and that's and that's that that holding cost is, is I think is great because the object is to move the house into the hands of someone who can actually occupy the house. Mm -hmm. And and the question raised raised is the perfect issue, which is how do you get the additional equity in the house so that a person can do and make the repairs necessary? So when you're talking about a sixty thousand dollars in additional money, but if the average income of a Detroiter is twenty seven, twenty eight thousand dollars, well they're bringing home probably roughly fourteen. $1,400 a month. If they got to spend, that, the, the subsidy interest rate on that house would have to be fairly low. I mean, you're talking about two or 3% in order to make it affordable for someone to move in it. And so the question is, how do the private banks backstop their loan into that house to make that house habitable? Because the object is to make sure that people can get in the house that's been rehabbed and that it has some value but you then end up with the other side of the coin, which is the house is valued less than what they put into it. And banks don't necessarily loan on houses where they can't pull their equity out of that property. And so we've got to figure that piece of it out because if we don't, we're spending, we'll spend $15,000 to board up a house only for that house to become a vacant and burnout house in the future. I don't think that's a good use of our dollar. Right. I just want to. I just want to say real quick, real quickly, though, that if you got a mortgage on a sixty thousand dollar home, um, you're probably paying less than five hundred dollars a month in the mortgage. That does not include the taxes and the insurance. But sixty thousand dollar mortgage is fairly expensive if you have a good interest rate. So um, I think that you could possibly make it affordable to, to people. We were selling. I mean, I think the question is not the price. The question is access to a mortgage tool. And that's just my guess, right? And when you look at the cost of um, rental housing for low-income people, it's, it's not necessarily not on par with that. But you can promise a mortgage product like that. We haven't seen one yet. And they've been promising that for the past um, six years. So I think that's the real question for me anyway. Yeah, I think, you know, part of how you arrive at that is if you're dealing with the issue of affordability, if we had an urban homesteading program where a person was able to go out and let's say select a house that they wanted to move into, using the tools that the city has available at its discretion now, they could structure a program that would allow that house to be rehabbed and transferred to the, to the private owner. It takes a lot of creative thinking about how to do that, but there certainly are tools available in the toolkit when you talk about Mischa, when you talk about TCF Bank, all the local banks that hold cities dollars 
could be negotiated with to create the products necessary to put people in the home. Because the last thing you want to do is you want to use private money first in order to then use the public money for interest rate subsidies, uh, interest rate buy-downs and things of that nature. That's the kind of program that when you're talking about changing housing policy and strategy, that's the approach that we really should be using versus borrowing money to rehab 8,000 houses, and really, I'm sorry, salvage 8,000 houses that will be left to the elements and, and to also de demolishing another 8,000 houses, which I don't think you can do with the money that they're trying to borrow. Right. So just kind of circling back, the, the dollars from the, from the proposal are intended to demolish 8,000 homes. And then when we talk about that salvage or rehab and it's fixing major roof repair issues and boarding them up so that they are not open to trespass or the elements. That's what, that, that's what those dollars are, are intended to be used for. That's what they will be used for. And I think as you start talking about broader affordability plans, all those things are important. They are just not proposal in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the issue that a lot of people in the community are having. When you're talking about developing and spending and going in debt, you need to have a complete understanding of, of, the, of the environment so that you can create a policy that allows people to get the best bang for their buck. Okay. All right. Um, so um, another question is what happens to the newly vacant land? Historically, the dem demolished spaces are laden with dumping for blocks and blocks, specifically in 4205. Is there provision for the use, more importantly, maintenance of all this new free space? And then a follow-up question is, um, going off of this, what is the general consensus on using these vacant lots um, for other green uses? So again, I think these properties go into the same programs that the city has been running, the side lot program, all those kind of spaces. But these are not properties that the city was not already maintaining. So the city isn't about to go buy new properties and then demolish them or, or not take care of them. These are properties that have already been on the city's rolls or, or have already been a problem for residents and neighbors. This is not new problems. This is finally having the ability to make them better. Does it go far enough? Absolutely not. But it's so important that we get a little bit further in this space because we haven't, right? And so is the side lock program perfect? No. Is it adequate? No. But is it working better now than it was 10 years ago? Is it easier to buy the house next door or you know, those lots? Yes, and we should continue to make them better. And we should continue to push the administration and city council and the land bank and whoever, whether it be at the state level or whatever, to has these properties and hold them more accountable. But this is the first step. It's adding one more tool to say, hey, we can get this done. Because what we read right now is tools in the toolbox. And that is the alternative we have is when people think about this thing, when they're thinking about proposal in, do you want more tools? Do you want them to have the ability to do more with the money that they have? Or do you not? So if you're comfortable with the way it is, great. If you think that there are a lot more problems that need to be addressed, whether it's around minority inclusion, around you know, neighborhoods, whether it's around green space, housing affordability, we should, and I would encourage us to continue to advocate for those kind of things and to be pushing the administration and the council and every elected official around you and every candidate who's coming to say how they're gonna make more affordable housing, how they're gonna do some of these kind of things. But as we talk about making neighborhoods safe and employing Detroiters and, and black businesses, this is an opportunity to do so that I don't think we can afford to miss. 
And I think, you know, the, the, the game in Detroit is always a Hobson's choice. It's a choice between the either or. And I think we need to get away from a Hobson's choice uh, mentality because we wouldn't be in this situation if we had first done the legwork and the groundwork to understand exactly what the issues are. The issue of vacant land management is a major issue in the city of Detroit because we have 137.9 square miles of land and we probably have 40 miles of, of vacant land. How do we put that land to productive use? If in fact, we're gonna have that land and we can't anticipate that our population is going to increase. These are issues that we should have a much better handle on and this part in the process, you keep saying it's not good, it's not perfect. We're not looking for perfect, we're looking for correct. We're looking for things to be done in a sequential manner so that as we move a process forward, when you come to the, the, the voters of Detroit, they are comfortable in doing that. The one thing I know about Detroit voters is that whenever they have been asked to invest in themselves, whether it was Coleman Young back in the 80s, uh, whether he, put, he was in the face of tax revolts across America, he put a tax ballot on the initiative because we needed the additional revenue, Detroit voters voted for it. When Detroit voters were asked to fund uh, school development, they stepped up and did it. If it's a good plan, Detroiters will go for it. And there shouldn't be a fear of analysis of a plan because Detroit voters are sophisticated enough to understand what is and what is not in their best interest. I don't want to give the voters short thrift because we believe that it's either or proposition when I don't believe it is. Uh, okay. Um, let's see. Um, what prevents a contractor who chooses to interview who chooses to interview presence preference instead of a fifty one percent obligation from only interviewing but not actually hiring any Detroiters? I'm sorry. Would you repeat the question? I, I didn't hear. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, what a contractor who chooses interview preference instead of a 51% obligation from only interviewing but not actually hiring any Detroiters? I think that's a major, major gap uh, in, the, in, the, in the ordinance as it's drafted because I can interview a lot of people, but if I don't hire anybody, then it doesn't really get us to where we need to get to, which is having Detroiters employed. I think that needs to be corrected, it needs to be mandatory and not preferential. Yeah, okay. Uh, the the next question, um, uh, again comes from from Doug Russell. It says, uh, "This millage, if we keep it, would pay out over four hundred million dollars. Why not offer long term policy that uses that money for affordable housing and compensation for overtaxed Detroiters? Anybody want to comment on that?" Uh, I can agree. you can you read the question again? Sure. Uh, if we keep it, if the this millage, if we keep it, will pay out over four hundred million dollars. Why not offer long long term policy that uses that money for affordable housing and compensation for overtaxed Detroiters? I mean, that's not on the ballot, so there's no way to do that this year. So if the question is would one of us or, or should we be working towards those goals? Yes, absolutely we should. Um, I, I want to um, go back to an earlier question. Um, one of our, um, Keith Jones um, texted me to help answer the question about the bidders. 
And um, he said um, that if, let's see, if a business does not have, let me see, it is a requirement for a business to have um, 51, higher 51% people. If they don't have it at the time of the bid, they will not be awarded. They must also maintain or they will not be able to participate in future bids. And council has requested quarterly reports that show the hours worked by, um, by folks. So I think that um, it's safe to say that the city council believes it has established teeth and that they have um, been able to rein in some of these folks who may or may not want to hire Detroiters. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> That's what I want to hear. Yeah, we, we want to hear that. Yeah, so I appreciate hearing that also. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry, Orlando, I just wanted to get Keith's response to that one question. Oh, no, 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 that's great. I think, um, I think we have answered most of the questions in the Q&A. Remember, if you have uh, questions regarding a proposal in to utilize the Q&A function uh, in, in the Zoom chat, and if you're on our Facebook streaming audience, uh, we welcome you to type your questions in the Facebook chat, and our Facebook and Zoom tech uh, providers will make sure that we get uh, those questions. There is a question, um, and it sort of centers around one of my earlier questions around who gets picked for uh, implementation of this. And it asks, can we get a list of houses that are going to be demolished? I'm, I, <laughs> I don't know if they can answer that question, but I'll at least ask you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there is a list today, but the uh, city council maintains a list of vacant and dangerous structures uh, that has been growing for, you know, decades. It falls under Councilmember Benson's district. And I know I have been pushing the administration, and so has he, to ensure that those homes take priority um, on all these spaces and that homes in every community get come down, right? Like this is not a, a situation where there's some targeted neighborhood or that one person is more deserving. People who have been waiting the longest should get priority. And that's what we should all be pushing for. And I know Councilmember Benson, who has been a big supporter of Proposal N and whose committee that falls on has made that a priority for him. So I expect his colleagues to be pushing for that to make sure that those are the first homes that come down. Some ones that have been on the list the longest. Now, obviously you'll continue to include those that are close to schools or you know daycare facilities but fundamentally it's got to be the people who have been waiting the longest so i wouldn't disagree with that um one of my questions is um about you know the economic climate right now like we're in a time of great economic um you know um i don't know if it's an economic collapse but there's a recession people don't know how long the recession is going to last and um, I know the stock market is doing well here. I'm not sure. I don't really follow that every day. But I hear that the stock market is doing pretty well. What about the bond market? Um, is the bond market strong enough for um, a $250 million bond to be floated and to be able to generate no more than, I think, nine mils off of that $250 million bond? So it's, it's a three mil um, maintenance. So it's continuing three mils. But yeah, the bond market is very strong. And when you talk about now, now is a better time probably than ever, you know, any time in our lifetime to borrow money because the interest rates are so astronomically low. And because of some of the, uh, you know, underlying issues around that space, governments who invest and continue to do those, 
this has always been a good way to come out of recession is by seeing government, you know, government spending, whether that have been, you know, right after the Great Depression or out of the Great Recession when you saw infrastructure projects going on. Would we love to see some, you know, bigger stuff being built? Absolutely. But when we talk about government borrowing money now, it's cheaper now than it has ever been to borrow and will continue to be. So the Fed announced that they're going to keep interest rates basically flat or, you know, next to zero for the next two years. So over the next two years is going to be a great time to borrow and even to refinance debt. So when you talk about, you know, and we were talking a little bit earlier about access to capital and interest rates, now is the time. And it's really an opportunity to make sure that we see that kind of benefit and investment and engagement in our communities, the way you've seen it in some of the more affluent communities where you see, you know, everybody refinancing their home mortgage because the interest rates are historically low levels and expect to be so for the next couple of years. It's really important that we make sure that those happen in our communities and that property values are able to rise and be stable. I think what we also need to understand is that, you know, debt borrowing is done on two levels. One is done on a macro level in terms of the amount of debt that's out there in the market. And given the fact that the federal government has borrowed billions and billions of dollars during this pandemic, it certainly is an issue that we need to consider. But you also have to look at the city uh, debt rating uh, through the, the rating agency. And given the last rating report that the city got from Standard & Poor's, it was very clear that they were taking a very close look at exactly what the city's profile is. Given the, uh, given the uh, budget issues that the city has faced uh, last year and this year because of the pandemic, I would suggest that I don't believe that the interest rate will be as favorable as people might want to believe, given the amount of deficit uh, that the city will run this year as a result of the pandemic. So I don't, we, we shouldn't paint this rosy picture that we're going to be able to go in and get a great interest rate. In fact, the interest rate will probably be higher, which will reduce the yield that the city would get on money that would be financed. I'm being told that we have callers who are unable to utilize the chat function or the, um, or the Facebook chat who want to contribute to this conversation. Camille, do you see anybody queued up? on the call list that is uh, trying to have an opportunity to speak to uh, Anthony Adam? I see two hands raised. Lady and 248-284-5687. Yes, and Lady was raised first, so I'm gonna click on her hand first. Hi, Lady, what's your question or comment? Make sure you unmute yourself. Are you there? Camille, can you unmute her? Camille, you're muted now. I can only ask callers to unmute. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, can we go to the uh, the next caller that's queued up, Camille, the 248 uh, number? Yep. Okay. Uh, I believe that is Brenda Butler's number. Don't ask me how I know that number by heart. I've been at EECM for a long time. Brenda Butler, your comment or question. <laughs> Yes. Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, as I listen to the conversation, uh, what I find that is very ironic, ironic is that uh, the mayor and the city council has put this proposal before us, and the conversations that we're having tonight are resolutions that need to go into the proposal and uh, there's too many missing pieces. 
So my question is, this was not thought out. It was just pushed to us. So we don't have the expenses on how much it's going to cost for this project to be done. And uh, we, as we all know, that uh, blight actually is a form of racism. And when I think back to uh, the two, our two presenters, presenters tonight, uh, talking about how the past program has not worked for us, that is so correct because I have had conversations on other Zoom calls with the mayor regarding uh, the blight, the way they ran the other program. How do you have a Detroit land bank and city government that has property in our city, but they do not set a budget to maintain the property? You maintain the front yards, you have maintained the front yards, but you don't do the backyards. And then you that, tell us. Stick with that question, Brenda, really quickly, let's stick with that question around uh, current and future upkeep of city owned or Detroit Land Bank Authority owned homes in terms of uh, lawn care, making sure that the house doesn't go derelict, uh, holding costs and all of that, and a budget no surrounding. Budget that snow and snow removal and all of that. What that? What is the budget and where is it? Where can residents find uh, find that data or, or uh, budget? Uh, Anthony or Adam want to tackle that? Sure. Uh, that that money would be found uh, in part in the in the land bank's budget. And, you know, they have a budget set aside for maintenance of property, which comes out of their administrative expense and overhead. I don't think the city maintains uh, any money in their own budget to maintain property other than their own. And so most of those funds would be found in the, in the land bank authority's budget uh, as a maintenance line item. Uh, okay. I know where it's found, but it is not enough. And it has never been enough. And according to the mayor, they're not putting any more in it. So why would we want to deal with uh, another proposal when we haven't cleaned up the city or the blight that we already have? That That is just perplexed to me. I think that's Thank a, you, Brenda, for your question. I'll let them respond and we'll move on to the next questions. Uh, clearly, every dollar you spend on maintenance of property is a dollar less you spend on demolition. And I'm not... Certainly, I'm not supporting uh, what they do because I believe there's some alternative ways in how property can be maintained by perhaps granting uh, property owners who live next to a vacant lot that they don't own because they've had issues in inquiring into a side lot program to get some type of small tax credit for maintaining that property. It certainly would allow the uh, maintenance budget of the land bank to be reduced because you're transferring responsibility and giving credit for someone who's helping to maintain the neighborhood. All right, we have another question in the chat. Uh, this one comes from Maggie DeSantis. Can someone please break down how the $250 million will be used? How much on demo? How much on salvaging? How much on rehab? And will there be time to influence or change that breakdown if proposal in passes? Adam, I'll let you uh, tackle that one. Thanks. So uh, 
right now the plan is to do 8,000 demolitions and 8,000 of those restorations. So obviously that can change, you know, it's just a, a rough estimate, but it 100% can change if on the ground it's running a little bit more expensive or, or cheaper to do one or the other. There has not been a massive citywide campaign to address some of these roof issues or do some of those board ups in a way that we're talking about now. That's why it's so important to be engaged in this process, to connect with the mayor, with the city council, and to be vigilant about how these dollars have been spent. It's really important that we are engaged from today going forward because something like this has never been done. And I think partnering with CDOs, partnering with the building trades and unions and schools to you know, cut down on some of these costs and make sure that the money is recycled in the community can only be a benefit to increasing that number from you know, really impacting 16,000 homes, which is what, you know, what we've really been thinking about is 8,000 demo, 8,000 securing and you know, clean out. Again, I think the, the way to deal with that is you have to leverage the dollars that you have. The $250 million, once you subtract a 10% administrative cost, which would be about $25 million to run the, to actually run the program for the life of it, uh, because the, the ratios and what the land bank spent in the administrative cost was almost 40%. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing how they're going to accomplish that. And so what you have to begin to do is change the focus of what is being done so that the dollars are leveraged. And if you leverage those dollars by making private banks come to the table to invest in our community. All right, so um, I have a couple of questions. I wanna, um, before we go over, before we move to the next question, I just have a question about that though, because I just looked through the bond language and it doesn't specify any uses really. I think that the proposal that city council is going to be asked to vote on next week specifies those uses. And that's not necessarily binding, is it? No, because normally if you want something binding on the bond resolution, it has to actually be in the bond resolution itself. The bond resolution normally is a very a, a skeletal document that says there's been a vote of council, it's authorized under the charter, and therefore the city has the authorization to, to buy the bonds. How that money is spent is a whole nother story. So the resolution, if it's not said in the resolution, it doesn't necessarily have to be followed. Right. So in answering Maggie's question then, it seems to me as though um, they're saying it's gonna be $8,000 $8, homes at approximately um, $15,000 each, which, which is what is projected. And I believe 8,000 homes at about $20,000 each. So they're talking about spending $90,000 on um, securing homes. And the rest of the money minus, um, minus administration on demolishing the homes. But there's nothing really that would stop them from saying, we thought we could save 8,000 homes, but it's really 3,000 homes. Or we thought we had to demolish 8,000 homes, but we really only have to demolish 5,000 homes. The question I have is how can city council assure and put some teeth in the Keith, if you're still listening, please send me that language. How can city council add teeth so that what people would vote on in November would actually be um, cemented in stone and not something that could be changed based on future political issues or goals? I would say based on how it's structured now, it would be impossible because if you, in fact you put very specific things within the bond resolution itself, then you need a bond lawyer to tell you whether or not every dollar you're spending is consistent with the resolution 
which gets you into other issues in terms of the taxability of bonds that might be issued. And so the way it's structured is they provide themselves with flexibility by not putting it in a bond resolution and allow the circumstances of the market to kind of dictate how that dollar is spent. And if you believe that they're going to spend the money in the right way, then I guess it's not an issue. But if you don't believe it, then it's an issue. Malik from Facebook says, also there are already many streams of funding that can be collected and used for demolition and housing development. The mayor and the city council are allowing Detroit resources to be routed away for the masses of Detroit residents. Um, is that something that you agree with or disagree with? Um, can you share that? Um, Anthony, can you answer first and Adam answer second this time? Um, I, you know, I think there are some other tools that exist with, with as, as a senator say, within the toolbox. I mean, for example, we use the tax increment finance district in, in downtown to help stimulate development. And what that is essentially is that you, you freeze the tax at a certain level and any increase in the tax that, that arises from development is captured within that, that project and is used to finance it. That is probably a tool that could and should be looked at in how we expand what we do. I think uh, Malik is correct. There are additional tools that we have, whether it's using a local development finance authorities, uh, housing development uh, funding. There are other tools, but without a comprehensive conversation, we can never really get to that, that analysis. Adam? Yeah, I mean, 100%, there are other tools that have been and continue to be used. They just aren't enough. And if you think that they are enough, Either the people who are using them are completely inept or we have bigger problems. And I think we have bigger problems, right? So when you look out across the community and you say, where have these tools been used? So, you know, Anthony talked about using TIFs. TIFs work in communities where property values are going up. You've seen them downtown, you see them in some business communities, but you don't see TIFs in, you know, traditional neighborhoods and certainly not the neighborhoods that are saying, when are you going to choose me? Right, like that is not where a TIF is successful. That's not where bids are successful. That's not where most of the economic development tools that community groups and that organizations are able to use and leverage work, which is why it's so important to have these additional dollars and these additional resources so that we can target them and spend in neighborhoods that have been saying, hey, I pay my taxes every year, but you haven't spent any money in my community. I pay my taxes every year and that house has still been here. I pay my taxes and this hasn't been done. And so it's so important that we have more tools because we are not getting the results that we want from the current tools. So there's no question we need to be doing more. If this is an opportunity to do more and you want to see more, do it. Okay. That's why I'll be voting yes. All right. So, um, all right, we have one more. Um, Yvonne, I think, has her hand up. Can we try to bring her in? Hi, Vaughn. Unmute yourself and go ahead with your question or comment. Okay. While we're waiting for her, I just want to Keith did respond to me that council has to approve every contract and that that is a strength and power. In addition, they will have an oversight committee that will monitor the program. And I guess that means that this is the framework in which you can prevent the mayor from just having his way and deciding um, the future mayor, whoever, um, deciding they're going to demolish 10,000 homes or 8,000, the city council will pass a resolution and then there will be a jointly owned committee that will oversee how those funds are spent. Yeah, but that's, that's kind of a, I'm going to say that's a fake issue. 
because we have a strong executive uh, form of government in Detroit. And at the end of the day, uh, I mean, let's be real. Everybody knows that the mayor runs the, the runs the executive branch. He determines how the money is to be spent. He controls the budget. He does what he wants. And so that's one of those issues that it looks nice on paper, but in reality, it really has no teeth there, other than the approving of contracts. All right. So uh, there's a, I, I want to um, to there's one more question that's asked by Cat Stafford. So I feel like I have to ask that question. And that is the city has already spent hundreds of millions of dollars on blight remediation. It has also set previous deadlines and goals for when Detroit would have been blight free, goals that were subsequently missed. Will this $250 million bond actually cover the remainder of needed blight remediation work? And what assurances are in place to ensure the city won't go back to residents with yet another ask for more funding? Donna, can I can I add to that? Uh, because the 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 chat uh, it has a life of its own, and so Professor Eric DeWicky from U of M answered Cat Stafford, who's a friend to Authentically Detroit, saying that Arthur Jimison confirmed that all of the sixteen thousand homes will address. Uh, that this will address are already owned by the DOBA. Some of us think that there are more than another, an, a whole other 20,000 vacants owned by private investors. So no way will this eliminate all blight. No dollars in proposal in is dedicated to enforcement on these invest and neglect slumlords. And so Catherine and Eric are having this question. Anthony and Adam get in on that. <laughs> and, and Kat just yeah. Hey, thanks. But she wants to know that the original pitch of this bond was that the city would be blight free by 2025. So um, yeah. final, final words, closing statements. I apologize to everybody else for going over time, but this has been a great discussion. Final words. Yeah, it's, it's not enough. This is a start. This is another tool in the toolkit. Anyone who's saying that this is going to solve the problem is wrong or that there is one solution. We need a whole bunch of strategies and a whole bunch more tools to get this thing. This is a huge problem that we have to address. It isn't gonna be done unless we do the housing things, unless we do some of these other enforcement pieces. But this is one piece, and I think an incredibly important piece to getting us a little bit closer. All right, so our guests, please don't go away because we have one final poll and we have a lot of more information. So stay on and we're gonna to go to Anthony. Okay, well, first of all, I wanna thank, uh, thank you all for having this very spirited discussion. I appreciate uh, the Senator standing up in his position. I think we've been able to talk a lot about substantive policy issues. My issue with this proposal is that it doesn't address what we need to address, which is the overall strategy on how we create affordable housing and how we deal with the issue of blight and home preservation. If in fact this proposal had been handled in a different way, and community engaged as the process was developed, we probably could have come up with a more comprehensive plan and more robust approach that would have had community buy-in. Now we have distrust and we have people who necessarily aren't amenable to moving forward in this manner. We do have issues we need to deal with. We all need to sit down at the table and develop a comprehensive strategy on how we're gonna deal with these issues. Okay. So um, I, I don't want to be unfair to Malik from Facebook. He kept, had a couple of things he wanted to say. So I'm going to close out and just give him this chance. Um, he's saying Detroit is owed over $50 million in defaulted Section 108 loans that have not been paid back, yet the current administration continues to loan out money to these same business entities and development projects rather than demand payment. 
We don't have a chance to de um, debate that, but I'm just going to allow him to be heard because um, that's the purpose of this is to make sure that people get heard. Um, sources revealed that Duggan wants to issue a 30-year UCO bond and also the current CFO was a bond attorney involved in the Flint water genocidal crisis facts. Um, one minute. Is any of that untrue or is that all true? One minute. Sorry. <laughs> it, it, so you know, the, the Section 108 uh, discussion is probably true uh, because a lot of those Section 108 uh, dollars went to projects that are now cash flowing and probably should uh, repay uh, some of that money back to the city. And so there probably is some dollars that can be gathered from that because of how those projects are structured. If they're cash flowing now, there should be uh, there should be a payback on some of that money to the city. Okay, Adam, one minute. I think it's all been said. I mean, I am certainly not trying to defend the administration on, on any of those kind of things. We have a long way to go and a lot of stuff that has to be done to get this right. Thank you. So we're going to go, I think, to our next poll. Okay, question number one. Did you learn anything new about proposal and during this meeting, yes or no? You can answer this on Facebook if you get a chance. And it's being shared with everybody here now. They'll give you real-time results and then we'll move on. Okay, the next question. Okay, 83% said yes and 17% said no. Hats off to the smart 17%. Next question. <laughs> Did this meeting influence your thinking about proposal in? Yes or no, or somewhat? Joyce Wells, okay. yes, it did. All right. Yes, 37%. No, 26%. And somewhat, 37%. So, yes, and somewhat, I guess that means yes, at some level. Next question. And Malik from Facebook said, yes. Have you changed your mind about proposal N? Yes or no? Okay. Waiting on the result. Yes, 17%. No, 83%. I wonder if the 17% who changed their minds already knew. It's interesting. Okay, let's go on. I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> if what was taken today, how would you vote on a proposal in? In favor, opposed, or unsure? Donna, as folks are taking uh, the survey, is there an opportunity for ECN to share the results of this survey in the uh, next uh, electronic alert that goes out to the community? Yes, we will. And we want to thank um, our guests. Uh, many were asked, but few were chosen. And Anthony and Adam showed up today. Um, today we have 24% um, said yes, 52% said opposed, and 24% are still not sure. So the jury is still out. And I think yeah. that a lot of what's going to happen is with that, um, the, the proposal that is, uh, the agreement that is reached next week at city council is going to influence a whole lot of people. Um, so you asked how many people voted in total. Um, I believe on here, there were 20 people who vote answered this question. Um, different numbers of people answered different questions. 
So we have between, I think, 20 and 30 people answering questions. Um, people, um, just for information's sake, we're not allowed to vote. Anybody who's a panelist can't vote. So this is all of the people who are not panelists. Um, so we're not to know it alls over here. We're not right. know it all. What we will continue <laughs> to do, I promise you, what we'll continue to do is ask these important questions, continue to book uh, guests on Authentically Detroit who are uh, operatives in this, in this proposal uh, and uh, monitoring it and uh, keeping folks accountable on so that we can ask these questions and uh, present, present the facts to you for you to make a decision this November. All right. And I do want to acknowledge that we invited Arthur Jemison to come onto this show to um, share his perspectives. And he was not able to make it, nor did he assign anybody from his administration. Um, I do want to thank Adam Ollier and Anthony Adams for um, doing the work of trying to help educate the community because community education is important. As we stated at the beginning of this, you know, inform people, make great decisions, and we are more informed today than we were beforehand. So we'll possibly have another communication after we know what's in that referendum. The vote was supposed to be actually yesterday and it just wasn't. So we'll, once we know what's in that next resolution, I should say, we may wanna have another meeting, maybe not as long dialogue, just to update people. And if not, we will send something out via our, um, our um, leap alerts and also Orlando and I will address this on Authentically Detroit in a future meeting. So, next topic. Okay, so um, I think we now have Ben on to talk yes. about Detroit. Yes, I'm here. Can you all hear me? Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you all so much. Uh, that was a really great discussion. I learned a ton about Proposal N. So thank you to the speakers and to both of you for facilitating that. Um, I'm here just to talk a little bit about uh, voting and specifically ways to vote early uh, in Detroit. Um, so you can make your voice heard on Proposal N, uh, other issues, other candidates up and down the ballot. Um, so I really was just here to provide a little bit of information about that. Um, so I'm gonna share my screen and uh, talk a little bit about early voting in Detroit. All right. Uh, so just as a brief overview, I'm going to try to keep this short because I want to leave uh, time for questions. I know we've, we've just gone through a, a pretty uh, invigorating discussion. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how you can register to vote, um, move into ways to vote early by mail, um, talk about a really exciting option that's on the horizon, um, which is voting early in person. Um, I'm going to talk about a great resource that is available, not just to Detroiters, but anyone in Michigan, um, which is the Nonpartisan Voter Protection Hotline. And last, I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, Brilliant Detroit Votes Initiative, which I'm involved with. That's a picture from the, uh, the Walk to Freedom in 1963. So uh, registering to vote, many of you may already be registered to vote. There are a few things I would just make note of here. Um, there are a couple ways to do it um, that are really the easiest ways. First is online. If you go to mi.gov vote, you can register to vote online. Uh, it's very simple. Number two, you can vote, you can register to vote in person at the Department of Elections um, on Grand Boulevard or at um, the satellite clerk's offices, which I'll talk a little about, bit about later. Those are going to be uh, in all likelihood a lot closer to where you actually live um, and potentially a more accessible option. I also wanted to mention that 
if you've moved in the last 30 days and your address has changed, you're going to want to update your address, which basically involves re-registering to vote. This is really important, um, especially if you are hoping to vote by mail so that the ballot goes to the correct address. Um, all right. So uh, in 2018, uh, Michigan voters approved Proposal 3, which uh, by, by huge margins, which gave uh, Michiganders a, a number of new voting rights. Um, so I just want to highlight a couple here for the purposes of this discussion. Um, the one that's really exciting is the right to an absentee ballot for any reason. So now, before you had to be uh, out, you know, maybe you were out of the out of the state during election day. Maybe um, you uh, had disability. Maybe you had some other um, reason that you were not able to to go in and vote in person. Working was not one of those reasons. So it was possible that if you were working all day on election day. Uh, you potentially could miss your chance to, to vote. So that was really concerning. And that's one of the things that Proposal 3 addressed. So now any Michigander can request a, an absentee ballot so they can vote by mail. Um, that is available to everyone. That is a new right that people have. Um, in addition, Proposal 3 established automatic voter registration. So anytime you visit the Secretary of State, unless you opt out, you're going to be automatically registered to vote. Um, so that's bringing a bunch of new people into the fold. Um, and then same day voter registration is available. So you know, it's probably not the best idea to vote to wait till election day to to register to vote. But for folks who show up and uh, they are for some reason not registered to vote, they can still register there. So those are really the exciting new uh, voting rights that Proposal Three has given us that are going to become relevant very soon and already are relevant. Um, so I wanted to walk through a little bit how exactly the the vote at home or the voting by mail process works because. This can be confusing for people. There can be some paperwork involved. Um, and it's sometimes not what people are used to. People are used to maybe going into the polls, waiting in line, um, and then casting their ballot in a, in a, in a, in a box you know, in the polling place. But uh, given the pandemic um, and given a number of other concerns, a lot of people might not want to uh, vote in person this year. They might want to vote from home. So I want to talk through that. So the number one most important thing, you can't go any further unless you're registered to vote and your registration is up to date. Um, that's again something you can uh, check on mi.gov slash vote. Um, I'm going to take us to that website in just a second. Um, if you are have not registered ever, you can go to mi.gov slash voter registration. It'll take you right to their portal to get registered to vote. Um, so number two is uh, actually requesting your ballot. This is something you can also do online. Um, you can print out the form if you have a printer and fill that out, but a lot of people don't have that option. Thankfully, uh, you can do that online at mi.gov slash vote. Um, you can also call uh, the city clerk and request that ballot to your house. So I put the phone number there, but again, you can Google the city clerk's number um, and request that directly to where you live. So um, I'm just briefly going to, um, excuse me, share my screen on uh, the mi.gov slash vote website. Just a moment here so that people can actually see what this looks like. All right, so when you type in mi.gov slash vote into your URL, this is what you're gonna see. Um, there are a bunch of frequently asked questions that you can go through there on the right, um, but I just wanna highlight what I mentioned um, in terms of registering to vote and uh, voting from home. So if you wanna register to vote, on the left side here, you click register to vote online, takes you to the uh, online voter registration portal, asks you a bunch of questions, and then you're good to go. Um, it's very quick. It really will not take you more than three minutes. Uh, number two, applying for an absentee ballot online. It's just the next thing down here on the left. You click on that. 
um, it's going to ask you basically the same questions you would see on the form, um, but then you will be in their system to receive an absentee ballot. Uh, if you want to just make sure that the clerk received your application, I always encourage that as kind of a fail safe. You can call the clerk. Um, also on this mi.gov slash vote website, you type in your information, you can track and see where you are in the process. Have they received your application? Has the ballot been sent to you? Have they actually received your ballot once you've sent it back? Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, easily accessible stuff here uh, for folks who don't want to have to deal with printing and folks who don't want to have to deal with actually going uh, in person to the polls um, for any number of reasons. Um, so I'm just going to return to my um, presentation here. All right. So uh, now that we've gone through that, you know, you're going to get, a, if you've applied for this, you're going to be get sent a ballot probably at the end of September or early, early October if you've already done this. Um, if you apply later, you're going to get it later. Uh, but it's really been uh, recommended that folks get in their ballot October 20th at the latest. So that's a full two weeks before uh, the election. That's to account for delays that we've been seeing in the postal system. Um, and honestly, if you if you get your ballot, one of the one of the best things you can do is turn it in as early as possible. So as soon as you get it, fill it out, um, put it back in the mail, there are instructions, or you can uh, hand deliver it uh, to the Department of Elections. As I mentioned before, you can track your ballot, mi.gov slash vote, I keep saying it, it really is a great resource. Uh, check it out if you haven't already, peruse the different options there. Um, yeah, let's go on to the next slide. So this is what I'm, I'm really excited about and what I uh, primarily wanted to speak to everyone here, everyone uh, uh, watching the live stream about. So you might not know about this, but uh, there is an, uh, an option to basically vote early in person uh, in the city of Detroit. This is, this is gonna be announced very soon. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, the city clerk Janice Winfrey and Secretary of State Benson announced a partnership where the state would be intervening and assisting Detroit in the administering of their elections. Um, there have been a number of issues in the past, so this was basically to give them the extra support they needed. Uh, one of the things listed in, one of the things promised in their, their partnership was to open a total of 21 satellite clerk offices throughout the city of Detroit. So rather than having to go to that location on Grand Boulevard that I mentioned, there might be a satellite clerk that's uh, office that's actually a lot closer to you. Um, a lot of these are being administered out of recreation centers or other facilities. Uh, they're going to be open six days a week, and that's including Saturdays, and they're going to be run by city staff. So you don't have to uh, go down to that uh, location. You don't have to go to your polling place to vote. You can actually go to these locations once they are announced to uh, request your ballot and cast it right then and there. So you could theoretically go in, having not been registered at all, get registered, get your ballot, give it right back to them and be done. So this, these are gonna be available starting October 5th. That is their plan, that's what they've announced. So if you are hoping to skip the line um, or get it over with, and maybe you don't uh, trust or don't like the, the system of actually mailing in your ballot, this is a great option for you. Um, now, the one caveat to that is that they have not, the exact locations have not been announced. Um, there were seven uh, satellite offices for the August uh, primary and for the March presidential primary. Um, those, a lot of those were at the uh, WC3D campuses um, and a couple recreation centers. Um, so keep an eye out for these. I'm, I really wish I had the locations and the hours to share with you now. Um, I'm sure I can uh, get them to Angela to share out, but 
they're coming very soon and this is going to be a great option for folks uh, who want to do it a different way, who want to get it out of the way, uh, who don't want to wait in the line, potentially cold weather um, on November 3rd. So this is an option, you don't have to choose it, but it's good to know about it. Moving on. So I, I really wanted to mention uh, this nonpartisan uh, voter protection hotline. So it's this is partially run by the ACLU of Michigan, um, also with a, uh, in partnership with other organizations. And if you have any questions uh, between now and election day, including on election day, this is the number you're going to want to call. It's 866-OUR-VOTE. Again, that's 866-OUR-VOTE. So it's 866-687-8683. And this is something that we can send around for sure after the fact. Um, there are also a, uh, separate hotlines for different languages. There's one in Spanish, Arabic, Bengali, um, even more than that. So, this is a great way to get your questions answered by someone who's been trained, who knows the election law, who has the answers to your questions. Um, so I highly recommend uh, writing this down uh, and using it if you run into any issues of any kind. All right, so lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the Brilliant Detroit Votes Initiative, which uh, I'm helping uh, lead throughout the city of Detroit. Uh, Brilliant Detroit uh, runs eight uh, and soon to be 13 uh, early childhood and family centers throughout the city that focus on early childhood literacy, uh, nutrition, um, what we call kids success neighborhoods. So basically out of the neighborhoods where we're active, we are helping folks uh, get registered to vote, if they wish, request an absentee ballot and make sure they know their voting rights. Um, we're working in partnership with the neighborhoods. So um, this is Latanya Baldwin. She is uh, one of our neighborhood leaders for the Brightmore neighborhood. Uh, she has a connection to the neighborhood. She knows the community well. So we're trying to bring on folks like this to, uh, to help us get this work done. Um, we have been at uh, weekly food distributions and diaper distributions. We've been at some farmers markets and we're just trying to make this as easy as possible for Detroiters, break down some of the barriers uh, that I mentioned earlier. So I wanted to make you all aware of this effort. If you're interested at all in getting involved or partnering, um, I'm gonna list my email at the end and I would love to hear from you and uh, see what we can do. So that's it, that's all I got. Um, I wanted to leave it open for questions. Um, my email is listed there, it's B Ratner, so B-R-A-T-N-E-R, at brilliantdetroit.org. Also throw it in the chat as well. Um, I may not know the answer to all of your questions, but I'm going to do my best. And like I said, that really the go-to way to get your questions answered is that, that hotline. That hotline is really a powerful tool for anyone who's got any issues. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen and uh, maybe if there are any questions, I have not been monitoring the chat. Um, folks can ask them now. my email here as well. I, I, yes, I don't think there are any questions yet, but if we get some, we can forward them to you. Let's move on because we're a little bit behind schedule. No problem. Hi everyone, so next up it's me, Camille, ECN's resident development officer. Please excuse my light, I don't know what to do to fix it, um, but I want you all to kind of see me. Um, so we're announcing today um, our save the date for the 2020 Eastside Extravaganza. It's going to be Thursday, October 22nd from 6 to 8 p.m. on Zoom and Facebook Live. It's going to be virtual this year. 
Um, but it's really gonna be a celebration to kind of bring the community together, highlight how we've all transcended this crisis of everything that is 2020 at this point together and then just have some fun together. So you're hearing it here first and we will be actually officially announcing and opening up registration at the end of this week. So stay tuned. How y'all doing? Peace and community and love and all that good stuff. Um, my name is Matthew J. Green, the Community Engagement Coordinator, DCN. I'm stepping in for Savannah Brewer. Make sure y'all keep her in y'all prayers. Um, I want to talk about the community yoga. So um, we have Wellness Wednesdays. That's um, every Wednesday um, at four o'clock. You can um, come through, get some, get some good stretching in, some good meditation, some nice yoga. Um, Lynette Smith is our instructor. She is very wonderful and does a real good job. Our next piece, the um, LEAP Sustainability Fellowship applications are still available. Please, if you know any community leaders, um, any voices, pillars in the community, please um, forward this to them. This will be on the website. Um, and I just wanna say, if you know any youth, any young adults that are um, voices in the community that are leaders, please refer this to them. This is not just a old folks thing or whatever the case, let's, let's get some youth involved so they can be the future leaders for tomorrow. And also um, our next October SAG will be October the 6th and the topic will be Michigan car insurance, policy around that, please stay tuned for that. I know a lot of y'all dealing with that car insurance, so please stay tuned for that. Flyer be out soon. Now I'm gonna switch it over to Ian. He's gonna talk about the MacGaff Business Association, what they have come, coming up next. Thanks, Matt. Hi, uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Ian McCain. I'm the business development manager along Mac uh, for ECN. So we support businesses on Mac between Connor and Maras. Um, straddles four different municipalities, around 200 businesses. And we also um, you know, provide uh, business attraction support as well, if you're interested in opening up a business on the corridor. Real quick, um, we just uh, did a public launch actually last night over Zoom of phase two of the Mac Avenue Improvement Plan. So that covers the corridor between Kadju and Maras. That plan is available for review at www.macavplan.com. So please go check it out. Look at some of the different concepts that uh, we've outlined in different areas on that portion of the corridor. And then our next bi-monthly Mac Avenue Business Association meeting is gonna be Monday, October 26th from 6 to 8 p.m. on Zoom. Uh, thank you so much. And if you have any questions or uh, your business on Mac that uh, needs support, I'll drop my email in the chat. I'll turn it back over to the COP department. Thank you, Ian. This is Angela Wilson, um, Deputy Director at Eastside Community Network for Programs. Our um, resource reminders, we are still providing assistance for homeowners who would like to apply for property tax uh, assistance. You can uh, reach us on our hotline, which I'll be sharing that number in just a second, or you can also contact the Board of Review at 313-224-3035. I encourage you to call us. They get a lot of calls down there. So I'll share that number in just a second. Uh, in order to qualify for this next program, pays, uh, Pay As You Stay program, which is for residents who may have back property taxes, you can uh, save a significant amount of money and get a lot of those fees 
interest and any overpayments reduced from your back taxes, um, but you have to be approved for the homeowner property uh, tax assistance first. We also wanna share that the Accounting Aid Society is continuing to do uh, income tax assistance. Uh, here, the phone number is 313-556-1920. They're doing virtual tax preparation uh, for families, I believe it's uh, incomes below $50,000. And then uh, the final piece here, the relief and recovery services at Wayne Metro Cares. Uh, they are assisting people with everything from property taxes to burial expenses, home repairs and utility expenses, especially for people who have those uh, issues as a direct result of uh, the COVID-19 virus. Um, their phone number is 313-388-9799 or you can go to Wayne Metro Cares waymetro.org slash cares to um, apply for those benefits. We are available here at EC and to assist you. If you need assistance with Wayne Metro Cares or with property tax assistance, please call our residential hotline number, which is 313-364-9432. You'll leave a message there, let us know what you need, and then one of our team members will call you back and walk you through the process, whether you're applying for Wayne Metro Cares or you're applying for uh, property tax assistance. Uh, we really do wanna assist folks in saving their homes and getting all the assistance they can uh, during this time. So please give us a call and we will get back to you as quickly as we possibly can. We also have a uh, business resource hotline uh, where Ian and our other, our other Mac Avenue staff will be able to support businesses, especially businesses on Mac Avenue. Um, we are working actively to support businesses and stabilizing as af after COVID, many businesses are reopening, but it is a struggle because they have, you know, old they have back bills in some cases, or they just are struggling to get customers back through the doors. So we're available to provide technical assistance and connect them with uh, professional TA in, in areas that might be helpful. Everything from having a presence online, if you don't have one, or increasing your presence online to finding new ways to deliver your service when you can't do it. Uh, the way you have in the past. That hotline number is 313-364-9439, or you can email Ian at the uh, email address that he dropped in the chat. And finally, we do have an ECN youth resource hotline. You can call and our youth department will assist you if you have young people who have concerns uh, or needs. The number is 313-364-9325. And we want to encourage you to get involved by joining a committee, volunteering to support one of the hotlines, or becoming a project volunteer here at ECN. You can call that residential hotline and let us know that you're interested in volunteering, and we will get back with you and get you connected. And I'll turn this over to Dylan. Good evening. Dylan Brown, uh, Marketing and Communications Manager at ECN. Uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, if you would like more information on everything we're doing and everything we've mentioned just now, uh, you can feel free to visit our website at www.ecn-detroit.org, um, which is, it also houses uh, the opportunity to sign up for our um, newsletter, which is via email. Um, to keep up with our text message, we also send up alerts and updates regarding our work via text message, if that's what you prefer. Just text the numbers 55 We'll text ECN, um, those three letters, to 55469. And then we're also on Facebook. Make sure you add us on there. Follow us on there. And also on Instagram, you can follow us there as well. 
at ECN underscore Detroit. All right, and now we're here for our closing remarks from our CEO and our committee chair people. All right, thank you for joining us. It was a rich discussion. Again, um, thank you to our two guest um, panelists, and actually our three guest panelists, our two guests, and also Ben Ratner, who shared a lot of important information about voting. We need to make sure people get out there. Um, Barb and um, Mac, are you gonna close us out? All right. I do want to apologize for running a little bit over time. Um, I wanted to err on the side of being a little long to make sure everybody's voices got heard because there were so many things. We apologize if anybody's voice did not get heard. Again, this is going to air on Authentically Detroit um, this week. Um, we'll add a little um, music to the beginning and Orlando's going to hype it up and you'll be hearing us. And, um, and you can also see it on the Authentically Detroit Facebook page. I believe we'll have the actual video.